Thank you for listening to Christian Family Church Podcast. Here at CFC, our mission is to live and communicate the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world around us. From wherever you're listening, we hope you'll be encouraged by this week's message. What a wonderful time of worship. Thank you, team. Very precious time of worship. And I trust that the Lord will lead my words as we share the message that I believe God has given to me to share with you today. A few weeks ago, we started a series saying that Jesus is the one sure thing. We've been looking at how important it is to have Jesus in our life. We're going to be shaken, we're challenged, we struggle. As we live our lives, prices are going up, (laughs) sickness is keeping people away, we've been separated. All of these challenges of life we've been faced with. But the one thing we know is that Jesus is the one sure thing. Now in the first few weeks of his series, Andrew spoke to us about some Old Testament guys like Elijah, Elisha, Nehemiah. But today I thought we'd look at a New Testament person. This is a man who had a life-changing experience when he came to have a chat with Jesus. He came at night. But this conversation he had with Jesus impacted his life dramatically and completely turned him around. I think it's fascinating. This guy's name, by the way, was Nicodemus, in case you didn't guess. I think it's fascinating to see how God chose to give direction to his people, his chosen people. We read in the Old Testament many, many different phases that the people, the children of Israel, went through. They started out by having patriarchs. Patriarch is a father figure, a father figure who would lead his people, be an example to his people. People like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph. Then came Moses, and Moses led into the, what was called the Mosaic Age, which went for about 1,600 years. From Mount Sinai, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, to Jesus' death on the cross. 1,600 years. Then, when the people of Israel eventually got back to Israel after being carried away by the Babylonians. They went through a phase of using prophets. Samuel was the first. The people of Israel didn't want prophets talking to them or patriarchs. They wanted a king. And so God said to Samuel, well, let's give them what they want. And so Saul was appointed a king and David and Solomon. These guys all had meteoric rises in popularity and in achievement and success, but then 
things started to fall apart. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see how the kings, when they started dividing the kingdom up, the whole idea of having kings started to fall apart and they had some terrible kings. And then the prophets came along. And these are prophets who wanted to challenge the people, bring their mind back to God. Prophets like Jonah, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. These guys were challenging the kings, trying to keep them on course, trying to follow God's will. But then came this Mosaic age. They had all of these rules and regulations, 613 rules they had, which they had to follow. So cast your minds back to that time if you can, or imagine you're in that time, where the Mosaic law is in full control. 613 rules and regulations. Children of Israel were living in the land again, following 613 rules. But they were slaves in their own land because the Romans had come in and taken over the place. But they knew that they were going to have a Messiah and they thought this Messiah was going to be a deliverer. And Jesus is going around preaching love and tolerance and forgiveness. And the people who were now leading the people, the Pharisees, the scribes, Sadducees, were all saying, what's going on? See, the scribes were lawyers, meticulous people who adhered to the law. And the Pharisees were, they believed in resurrection. They believed in the law, but they believed in tradition. The tradition of the fathers is what has to be followed. And these Sadducees were really the people that sort of ruled what was going on in the land. And one of these Sadducees was a guy named Nicodemus. So one night, Nicodemus came to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And so we read in John 3, verses 1 to 3. There was a man named Nicodemus. He was a proud religious law keeper and a leader of the Jews. And he came to Jesus one night and he said, Teacher, we know you have come from God to teach us. No one can do the powerful works that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said to him, For sure I tell you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the holy nation of God or he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus acknowledged Jesus as, as a teacher or a rabbi. And he says it is well known that he's been performing miracles. Then Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this would have shattered the Jewish assumption of racial identity, their birthright. Because they believed that they were assured a place in the kingdom of God 
because they descended from Abraham. And what Jesus is saying is that this is not really what is going on. You don't get into the kingdom of God because you're a Jew, because you descended from Abraham. You've got to, your first birth is not the guarantee of inheritance. Only being born again. And this would have rattled Nicodemus's cage a little bit. <laughs> he doesn't really understand what's going on. And so he says, what do you mean? In verse 4. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Verse 5, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. And just as you can hear the wind, you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is saying, hang on, what are you saying? And he pretends he doesn't get what Jesus is saying about being born again. He says, go back to the mother's womb. No. Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus at a level that Jesus thought he should understand. Because the Jewish people, because he's a tradition of the fathers, he's would be remembering back to Ezekiel, chapters 36 and 37, where Ezekiel is talking about their deliverance out of captivity back to the land. And there's spiritual cleansing going on in Ezekiel. So when Jesus said, I assure you no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the water and the spirit, Nicodemus should have understood if you read the commentaries about this passage, you'll see various people will talk about Jesus is talking about baptism with his reference to water and the spirit. Others will say that it's referring to just the spiritual birth with the, break, spiritual birth with the breaking of waters. Or maybe the water was symbolising the word of God, analogous to the word of God. But I find the most compelling explanation is that Jesus was actually referring Ezekiel back, uh, Nicodemus, Nehemiah, where did that come from? Nicodemus back to Ezekiel in chapter 36 verses 24 to 28. It says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. This is what we're talking about. They've come out of Babylon They've returned to the land and that they are now living in their promised land again. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from all idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land that I, give, I gave your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. New heart, new spirit, 
total turnaround in your life. A new start, like being born again. Then Nicodemus says, how is this possible? In verse 9, Jesus tells him that he should understand because he's a respected Jewish teacher. He should understand this stuff. It's in Ezekiel. But if you don't understand earthly things, how on earth are you going to understand spiritual things? Then in verses 13 to 15, Jesus says to him this, No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life. Jesus is referring to that time during the exodus out of Egypt back in Numbers, where the people were walking along, lousy food, tired, long trek, going nowhere, and they started grumbling. So God caused some snakes to come among them and start biting them, and some of them were dying, and they got really upset about this. And so Moses said, uh, God said to Moses, make a snake, hold it up on high, on a pole, and anybody who looks at this snake won't die. It's in Numbers verses um, 4 and 9. 21, 4 and 9. Jesus is saying that he must be lifted up and so that anyone who looks on him will have eternal life just as the people of Israel looked at the snake. Now, the next thing Jesus says, you all know, of the 31,102 verses in the Bible, this one, John 3.16, is probably the best known as an evangelistic verse particularly, but one of the best known verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. <laughs> this is another shock for Nicodemus. The Jews thought God loved Israel. This is universal salvation that Jesus is talking about. So this must have seemed revolutionary for Nicodemus. Jesus is saying that God sent his son to bring salvation, rescue, hope, healing to the world through him. Jesus is the one sure thing. Now, accepting your life, Jesus into your life, is transformative. And it did that for Nicodemus. Never underestimate the changes that can occur in others as they watch you. The way you speak, the way you speak to others, the way you relate to 
your friends, the way you conduct yourself in business, the way you treat your employers, the way you treat your employees. Never underestimate the impact that you can have when you sow your faith into others. It's presence evangelism. Just the way you are impacts people. John and Charles Wesley were born in the, the, the start of the 18th century. And they were raised in a Christian household. And they were hugely influenced by their mother, Susanna. John wrote, My mother never suffered anything to break in on her stated hours of retirement. This is her quiet time. Which she sacredly observed from the age of 17 or 18 to 72. Now, Susanna was in the habit of putting an apron over her head to let the kids know that this is her quiet time. Sign that she was not to be disturbed. Now, John, while he was studying at Oxford, he, he led a group called the Holy Club at Oxford. And he was so organised in his faith, so organised in the way that he conducted his, his self, that the other students started calling them Methodists because of the methodical way that they approached their, their study. They called them Methodists. This was supposed to be a jibe, a dig. But John Wesley thought, wow, this is not an insulting term. This is something that is complimentary. And eventually he took on the name and the Methodists changed the world in the way that they approached things. From the seeds that were planted by his mother, things changed. Susanna Wesley, in many ways, could be called the mother of Methodism. Up the back, by the way, I've put a little list of Susanna Wesley's 16 rules of parenthood. They're on the back counter. You might find them interesting if you want to have a look. These were written 300 years ago, I must admit. <laughs> so they, they might be not very appropriate today, but there are some pearlers in there which you'll love. Susanna Wesley, she was the youngest of 25 children. She had 19 children of her own. Well, says Andrew. <laughs> Nine of them died in infancy. Two sets of twins. Nine died in infancy. And only seven survived her, including her two sons. John and Charles. She had a difficult marriage. She had a husband who was often absent or in debt or in debtor's prison. She didn't, he didn't approve of educating the girls. He didn't approve of any of the suitors for his daughters. Twice the family house burnt down. And yet 
She dedicated her life to instilling a sense of Christian destiny into the children. And they, in turn, changed the world. Eric Metaxas, in his book Seven Women, says this about Susanna Wesley. Few human beings have influenced the world as Susan Wesley did. The manner in which she taught her children greatly influenced the world of her son John. Sorry, influenced the work of her son John and the Methodist movement he founded led to a world-changing revival and to such an array of social reforms that can never be calculated. The abolition of the slave trade and slavery are at the top, are at the top of a long list that includes penal reform, the end of child labour in England, law against cruelty to animals, and the establishment of countless private societies and organisations dedicated to the caring for the poor and suffering. Metaxas concludes by saying, anyone believing that the life of a woman dedicated to her family must be less than optimal cannot know the story of Susanna Wesley. Despite poverty, illness, a difficult marriage and, a, and heartbreak of endless forms, she used her intellect, creativity, time, energies and will in such a way that can hardly be reckoned. The world will, in which we live owes much to the goodness in her, to her life. I get emotional just reading that because she is such an amazing example. We never know the impact that our life in Jesus might have. Last week, Dee spoke to us about things that occurred in how things in, that happen in your life can, can change you. The thinking, the way you think, the lies you tell yourselves. But that Jesus came so that we can be totally free was the thrust of Dee's message last week. Dee said that she had her eureka moment, that's my words, not hers, her eureka moment that Jesus is God when she was 30 years old after growing up in a Christian household. While sitting in a bath, I asked Dee after the service if she was like Archimedes and leapt out of the bath and she said no, she just kept adding hot water. <laughs> Interestingly, John and Charles Wesley had a eureka moment at the age of 30. Now, in 1938, they heard a sermon from a friend of theirs, an evangelist named George Whitfield. It was entitled, You Must Be Born Again. Back to the Nicodemus readings. So the seeds planted in those formative years had a catalyst when they heard the right message, the right words came to them, and that changed things. A few chapters later in John, Nicodemus is only mentioned in John's Gospel. Chapter 7, in verses 50 to 52, then Nicodemus, the leader who had met Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he's given a hearing, he asked. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures. 
and see for yourselves. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Now, a few verses earlier, Jesus had been talking about living water. He'd been talking about the Spirit. And some people were saying, he must be the Messiah. He must be a prophet. And they were looking up to him. And others were saying, it's impossible, he's from Galilee. And the Pharisees are saying, it's foolish, these people, these crowds, they're following Jesus, but it's just not right. He's just not from the right place. We expect him to be from somewhere else. It's ironic, I think, that the uh, religious leaders, persecuted people, are so willing to persecute people just because they're from Galilee. Galilee's up the north of Israel. It's a bit like us saying that they're from Queensland and they can't be listened to. (laughs) But they said, the scriptures say, look at the scriptures. Nothing comes out of Galilee. Now, interestingly, um, I've lost my place. Jonah, Jonah, sorry, and Elijah both came from up there. So why let prejudice get in, 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 in the way of a good... Or why, why let the facts get in the way of a good prejudice, I should say? Prejudice and persecution are everywhere and always have been. And even though slavery was abolished in England in 1833, the slave trade was stopped in 1807. John Wesley, who started the movement towards its abolition, wasn't alive to see that. But William Wilberforce was. William Wilberforce was a mentee of John Wesley. Close follower of John Wesley. And so William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson moved to get the slave trade abolished. That happened in 1807. And in 1883, 18, yes, 1833, 50 years earlier, 1833, a month after Wilberforce died, the Parliamentary Act was passed to abolish slavery. And in America... Another 30 years later, in 1865, after a civil war, slavery was abolished in America. And the 13th Amendment of the Constitution was put in there to stop slavery. But for the African Americans, the persecution continues to this day. One of the greatest worries for the civil rights movement the fight against prejudice, was Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was ordained a Baptist minister in 1954. He was awarded a doctorate in 1955. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard or read his I Have a Dream speech, one of the most famous speeches from Martin Luther King. 
in that speech, he says that it's 100 years ago that the Negro was the words he used. They call them African-American now. They've tried to be a little bit more politically correct. He says it's 100 years ago and nothing's changed. We're still enslaved. We're still persecuted. We're still looked down on. And 60 years later, is it any better? In 1967, Martin Luther King invoked Nicodemus as a metaphor. And he said this. If you will, I won't try and do a Martin Luther King voice. If you will let me be a preacher just one little bit. One night a juror came to Jesus and he wanted to know what he could do to be saved. Jesus didn't get bogged down in the kind of isolated approach of what he shouldn't do. Jesus didn't say, now Nicodemus, you must stop lying. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must stop cheating if you're doing that. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must commit adultery. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must stop drinking liquor if you're doing that excessively. Instead of just getting bogged down in one thing, Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. Then he went on to say, what I'm saying is this, that we must go from this convention and say, America, you must be born again. So King spent his time fighting against persecution and injustice. He was thrown into jail several times. He was mobbed, he was bashed, he had all sorts of terrible things happen to him in his fight to do what he believed God's will was. And in his case, it was the fight against persecution. On the 3rd of April in 1968, King gave a speech at a church in Memphis, Tennessee, in which he spoke about these attempts, on his, about the threats on his life about the challenges he was facing in doing the work. He said this, Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I might, I might not get there with you. But I want you to know, know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The next day he was assassinated. The third and final time we meet Nicodemus is immediately after Jesus' death in John 19. It says in verses 38 to 42, Afterward Joseph of Arimathea who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. 
When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made of myrrh and aloes. Following Jesus' Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden, so <clears throat> there was a tomb nearby, never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close to hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, at first reading, Nicodemus might seem to be an incidental character in this narrative. However, it is clear that Jesus had literally changed his life. We read that Nicodemus bought 75 pounds of spices. This is a phenomenal amount. This is a very, very valuable gift. A truly a rich man's expression of absolute devotion. Now, it's essential to the Jewish custom to get a body down and buried. The Roman way was to leave the body hanging on the cross so that the crows and so forth can just, with the body, leave it there. But the Jewish custom was, and they managed to get Jesus down and buried. So we see these two prominent people, one a secret follower of Jesus and one a person whose life has been transformed person who had been born again. He must have been very brave to do that, given that he was a Pharisee, given that his position in the society, and yet he did. For us, trials and setbacks, disappointments, persecution, they're all going to be in our lives. We're still going to have challenges, we're still facing the challenges of COVID. We've got challenges of inflation, all of these things, all of these trials, all of these difficulties. The important thing, though, to remember is that God is with us. Isaiah 43, verse 2 says, When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. Nicodemus saw what Jesus did and believed. Today, we just believe. Jesus said there is a blessing in believing, even if we haven't seen. Susanna Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, Martin Luther King are great examples of people who have made an impact because they believed. Don't lose heart. Believe God. Trust his word. Keep moving. Keep believing. I can't promise you that God will not allow us to go through suffering. Suffering is one of the ways we encounter God. I would love to tell you how God will stop the pain. But sometimes he just wants to lead us through it. 
Jesus promised that he would be with us always. Jesus promised Nicodemus that whoever believes in him takes him into their heart, puts their trust in him, will have a place with him in eternity. The truth is that God's goodness, Jesus' presence, doesn't leave us, even when our circumstances change. He is always the same. He is always there. And that's the amazing thing, really. It's Through our disappointments, it is so often that we sometimes turn away from God. But turning from God in the midst of our pain removes the only good thing that's there in our pain. So remember that as we struggle through these sad situations that come our way. God is always with us. Now I mentioned earlier that Charles Wesley experienced this transformational change. We're going to sing a song of his now. If I can ask the band to come up. Interestingly, I, when I asked the band if they could sing this song, they didn't know it. <laughs> I, find, I found that amazing as somebody, who <laughs> somebody who's grown up singing this song. And can it be we're going to sing a Charles Wesley song, one of the most famous songs of the six, more than 6,000 hymns that Charles Wesley penned. And can it be? And in it he asks the question, how can it be that Jesus died for me? What amazing love. So, as we sing this song, think of these words, think of the words, and at the end of each, each verse there's a chorus that says, amazing love, how can it be that Christ my Lord should die for me? But when you're singing that, think about it this way. Amazing love, how can it be that Jesus is the one sure thing? Thanks, band.